You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. There are people that have the gift of the hot take, and whatever they see, say seems to come true. There are people that give you hot takes, and when they're not right, they just don't acknowledge them. I'm neither of those people, as I've yet again learned, Sarah, that I give out the hot <laughs> takes, and sometimes I'm just so wrong, i got to stand up and say, oh my God, my bad, and that comes in the form of two words, Brooklyn Nets. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, <laughs> Sirius XM Channel 80, and the ESPN app. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive, uh, brought to you by uh, all of our guests will be on the Goodyear Hotline, and we're going to start with some straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. The straight talk is simple, Sarah. I stink at hot takes because I sat here and said Brooklyn's done. Continuity has to matter. you got to play some games together. Then Harden gets hurt, and I think, okay, that's only one more layer that's going to add to my ability to be able to stand up and say, hey, I told you first that Brooklyn wasn't going to be able to win, and all they have done is gone in against the Bucks, the team that you know I regard highly, and they have absolutely demoralized them. The Bucks have been the fat kid in dodgeball through this whole series so far. I know because I was. It has not been pleasant, and right now there is no reason to doubt the Nets' ability to go in and do what they want, when they want, how they want it, and there's nothing Milwaukee can do about it. Yeah, you know, I, I want to argue with you in your defense, but uh, I think you're right. It was a terrible take. Uh, it was a bad take. Uh, if anything, maybe you could question whether their defense would come back to bite them, seeing as teams with as ranked low defenses as theirs during the regular season almost ever go on to win it all. Uh, but uh, you focused instead on, on the injuries. And what's fascinating is that, you know, they didn't blink an eye with Harden out because they had had so many games with him out during the regular season. That would usually be a hindrance. But in a case of a team that has the kind of superstar power that the Nets do, they just kept it moving, right? And I, I will say this about this Nets team. I've already heard people, including Rachel Nichols on the jump today, question and ask aloud whether this might be the, the start of a dynasty for the Nets. And I'm not saying that it's not going to happen. I'm not going to jump into that same hole that you've already dug yourself. I'm simply going to ask, when we see this team against a better coached squad with a better game plan, will they look as dominant? Because as much as the Bucks have gotten better since last season, as much as they added the right pieces, I'm going out and saying that the questions we had last year about Coach Bud are still there, and they are being amplified by what we're seeing in this series. You do not run a zone against one of the greatest shooting teams in the history of basketball. They are shooting right over the top of it. You do not get away from the game plan, which is the focus that you have that's better than this team, which is pound the paint. You are letting Blake Griffin, who, by the way, looks fantastic and is a good player, but a guy that was all but out of the league, push your guy, your MVP and Giannis, four feet past on average, on every shot, than he wants to be. And he's moving himself out of the paint because he's afraid of missing the free throws. You are letting them dictate your game to you. And that is coming from coaching. And, you know, I don't blame people for asking questions about Giannis as an MVP and whether he should be able to do better on Durant defensively. I don't blame people for asking whether he should be a guy who can be moved off his game by a defender. But there's a lot bigger questions than just Giannis here fits. And to me, the finger is pointing at Coach Bud for the game plan. Yeah, and you mentioned the success the Nets have had despite not having all of their big three healthy. In fact, through this series so far, they're shooting 48%. The non-big three shooters, everybody else that's not a Durant, a Kyrie, or a Harden, 
is shooting 48% in this series. That's alarming. They're averaging 66 points per game. Like, they are getting after Milwaukee with everybody else and with their main guys. And as you mentioned, the Nets don't play defense. They don't even pretend to care to play defense. And, and that they're looking doesn't all matter. world. They're and, looking and, like, all world on defense because of how bad the game plan is. I mean, that's the stunning thing for Milwaukee to only put up 86 points against. Like, you can tell me Milwaukee was going to lose the first two games in the series, and I wouldn't panic. But what we saw last night was absolute garbage from the Bucks, and that's the part that really stuns me. And you're right. I, I mean, I think a lot of people that have watched Coach Bud over the years will tell you that he's been a little resistant to change at times, as many coaches are. And it seems like maybe you know he's he's slow. To, to adjust, but at some point you look at the pressure that's on this team and that's something Jay Will talked about on KJ, KJ and Z this morning. Jay Will talked about the pressure on the Bucks specifically. The most pressure is on the organization. On the organization. Really? Because I'm telling you right now, if you're Giannis, you're looking at the situation saying, if we get smacked like this, if we get smacked like this, like Brooklyn ain't going nowhere. Philly ain't going nowhere. Atlanta's coming. We retooled. What are, like, what are we me? doing? Is he going to pull a James I, I, I said it the day he signed his contract, and every Milwaukee fan tried to come at me and throw venom at me. What are you talking about? I'm telling you, if they don't get to the conference finals in a couple years, next year, they if they get – Brooklyn's going to win this series. Mm-hmm. If they don't get there next year, Giannis going to be talking about going somewhere else. I love Jay's fan voice. <laughs> He's going to be talking about going somewhere else. I know this. It's going to happen. You're going to start looking around the league and saying, what's a better situation – where a GM and an owner can help me win a championship. That's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. Sarah, are you buying that? No, I'm not. And listen, there will be some doubt in Giannis's mind for sure, but he has shown nothing but loyalty to this place. It is the beginning of a massive deal. And to me, Coach Bud doesn't last this season. If they're out, if they lose this series, if they look as bad as they have against the Nets, there's going to be a new coach in there, and that's going to give Giannis the hope that they can do better. There's going to be a desire to go out and get even more talent to fill in the, the holes, right? And as much as Jay went to the side of this is not at all Giannis's fault, he's going to bolt because he looks around and isn't getting enough help. Kendrick Perkins went the opposite way. I don't agree with either of them that it's all on Giannis or that Giannis is not to fault at all. But I do think that Kendrick Perkins said something that a lot of people are feeling this is what he said on Get Up Today about Giannis letting us know who he really is. He is who he is, and he's going to continue to show us that he's not a number one option guy. And right now, Kevin Durant is spanking Giannis and got him over his lap and giving him a straight spanking. And when you look at it, he's having dear sausage and dear stew. He's doing whatever he wants to Giannis and locking him up on the defensive end. So I'm looking at it. And I'm not, I'm not even mad at Giannis. I'm not mad at the Bucks. I'm mad at Big Perk for letting people trick me to picking Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks, knowing I should know better than to go against Kevin Durant, who's, by the way, not only the best scorer the game has ever seen, he's the best player in the league right now. I blame Jake on our show. Jake works on the show, and, you know, a couple of months ago, I was like, no, nah, I, I don't know, I don't know. And then he said, nope, got to rewatch this Bucks team. Sarah, I did, and then I, I just started buying into the hype. And, yeah. you know, maybe maybe Perk and I are in the same, like, if we were a tag team together. Maybe, you know, if, if somebody fooled Perk, they can fool me. Like, I feel a little better about it at this point. But none of us saw the blowout coming. I, I think, again, no. I'll go back to sometimes mm-hmm. it's the way you lose – and to lose the first two games in a series against Brooklyn, there's no shame in that. In fact, if they lose this series overall to Brooklyn, I don't necessarily know that wholesale change would have had to have come. 
But if you can't even be competitive with Brooklyn and you do have Giannis, who is one of the best players in the NBA, then what the hell's the point? Like, if you're a Bucks fan, you're looking around saying, what are we even rooting for? And if you're the Bucks organization, I'll hold them to the same standards and the same conversations we've had this week about the Celtics and every, every team that looks to rebuild. Like, what are you rebuilding for? Because, man, the Nets are that much better than you are right now. It's Spain and Fitz here, Spain, Jason Fitz. You're right, and there is a, 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 a scary-looking East that you're trying to compete with. But there are things that the Bucks can do to give themselves a chance. And while some people would say they looked horrific in that game, they'll never dig themselves out, others might say, listen, you fig- figure out early on that you're in a blowout, and then you just get your mind right for the next one. And there are a couple things that they could do immediately. One, they attempted 21 fewer shots in the paint in Game 2 than the first one and scored 20 fewer points. Two, they had 430 passes to the Nets, 607. Mm. They got stagnant. They regressed to pushing it around on the perimeter. They weren't passing. They weren't driving and kicking. They let the Nets decide what kind of team they are. The Nets scored 140 points off jumpers. The Bucks scored 64. And like I said before, when Blake was the primary defender on Giannis, he kept pushing him further and away from the basket, an average of four feet further back on every shot he took with Blake on him. He has to assert himself, and they have to go down fighting, playing their game, which they cannot do uh, if they if they approach the game like they did yesterday, uh, and that's at least going to give them a shot against a really good Nets team that might still beat them anyway. I will never shy away from when my takes are wrong, and this one seems like it was wrong, but we are just getting started with the fiery takes about particular teams in action tonight. You'll hear a couple of those takes and what it means for the NBA playoffs next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Fitz started off the show by basically apologizing to the Nets for his terrible take that they were done, that all the injuries during the regular season, the lack of practice together, maybe even their bad defense would slow them down in the postseason. And it hasn't so far. If I were a big woman, maybe I would also apologize to the Clippers for saying midway through their last series with the Mavs, when Ty Lue said they were going to show us who they were, I said they are going to show us who they are. They are going to show us what they've got. And it ain't much. <laughs> Maybe I would say I'm wrong. Look at how they stormed back to win the series against a dominant Luka. The Clippers are ready to take over the West. But no. I refuse to apologize to the Clippers. I will never believe in you again. You have turned me into Tyra Banks circa America's Next Top Model. I believed in you. We all believed in you. And you burned me too many times. You are on my list. I do not bet against LeBron. I do not bet against Aaron Rodgers, against the Bears. And I will never again bet on behalf of the Clippers. The real Clippers are showing up. I don't know when. It might not be tonight. But I refuse to apologize to them. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive and brought to you by My Computer Career, Training for a Better Life. Fitz, I mean, I don't think I should have to apologize. I feel like I'm in an abusive relationship with the Clippers, and every time I let them back in, they just go out and take a dump on the court again. You know what, Kawhi, to use your uh, your Tyra analogy, Kawhi's like that one contestant every year that you see on the show that you know when they bring it. It's so amazing. You can't do anything about their best picture. And then all of a sudden they have two or three pictures in a row where they're just invisible. I want more right. consistency. More you know consistency. what they remind me of? The one who won't cut her hair. Oh, when Wait, Tyra says, and how Listen, do you not know that? Like, I'm going to make you show. great. You, I'm going to you... make you great with this haircut. No, no, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home instead of being in a national show cutting my hair, even if Tyra makes a supermodel told me to do it. 
and every year I, I sit there and say, my God, like you've watched the show enough, you know somebody's yeah, going to get their hair cut. Coming. You know. Like, Just come on. get your hair cut and, and take a photo with that snake. We all get know why we're here. We get a wig. It's Spade and Fitz, Harris Spade and Jason Fitz. I'm not apologizing to the Clippers. We'll get to that series next. I do want to get your take on the Sixers-Hawks series because uh, our buddy Cliff, who's producing the show tonight, uh, has no worries despite the fact that they didn't seem to have very many answers for Trey Young. In fact, this is what he said about the series. I got no worries. Sixers in five. Yeah, <laughs> Sixers in five. Meanwhile, somebody who is quite worried is Stephen A. Smith, who said if they don't win tonight, it's over. And I'm here to announce this on national television. 76ers don't win game two. This series is over. They're not beating Atlanta four out of five games. Not the way they shoot. Not the way they shoot. I mean, I I think maybe there's a a happy medium. Like, you know, if we're playing the Goldilocks thing, like Cliff might be – one bed, and then Stephen A. might be the other bed, and I'm somewhere in the middle. Like, uh, you know, look, Just I was surprised. Right. I, I genuinely did not expect, as great as we all know Trey Young is at this point, I did not expect Atlanta to come out and do what they did in game one. So I'll be the first to admit that I thought the 76ers were going to be just fine in this series. And, you know, I said that even when it came down to the injury status, that I didn't think they'd struggle with Atlanta no matter how they're positioned. And you disagreed with that. And guess what? So far, so good for you, Sarah. You are right on that one. Uh, But at some point, as magical as it was in game one to see what happened, I mean, my panic level is so small uh, at this point because Philly is still a more talented team. It, it felt like Atlanta had one of those nights where everything broke the right way, and I don't want to reduce it down to that. Like, Atlanta is a very good team, but I'm not sitting here panicking about where the 76ers are in the series yet. Are you? I think I'm stuck at just right as well. I'm not nearly as confident as Cliff, that's for sure. But I also don't agree with Stephen A. I do think his point is a valid one, right? If they don't make the proper changes tonight – to see how they can better stop this hot-shooting Atlanta team. Will they be able to figure it out? Shouldn't there be some obvious things? And one of those is how do you cover Trey Young? They started blitzing him more in the second half. They started throwing different bodies at him. He had just 10 points on 3 of 10 shooting in the second half. Now, they have to be able to do that in a way that doesn't get them into foul trouble. You look at Ben Simmons picking up too early in that coverage, and you might have asked, why did they put Danny Green on him to start with? Well, probably because Trey has become so good at drawing fouls. He throws himself into defenders. This is a rule that the NBA needs to figure out in, in a bigger picture. It's fun to watch great offense. It's fun to watch these lithe, petite stars, the Steph Currys and the Trey Youngs, these you know small bodies put up crazy shots. But the manipulations of the defense make it nearly impossible to cover. And we heard that from the Sixers after the game, right? He will jump into you, back into you, do whatever he needs to, and especially if if you're a big body like Simmons, the officials are looking at that and seeing the bigger guy and calling the whistle on him. Now, Richard Jefferson talked about this specifically today, and I think he's absolutely right. They need to figure out how to have the right guys on Trey and how to cover him right, or they are going to suffer the same fate that the Knicks did. Well, you have to mix up the defenders. Like, I understand that Danny Green was a primary defender, but it's got to be multiple defenders that, you know, so he can't get a rhythm. Because great offensive players, and I'm not talking about just scoring, but guys that control the tempo of the game, assist. You have to trap him some plays. You have to hedge him some plays. You have to play him one-on-one. You have to put bigger defenders on him because no great player, and Trey is becoming a great player, borderline superstar in our eyes, that he's got to be able able to see different looks or else he's going to get a rhythm and he'll carve and you look, apart. And look, Sarah, to, to that point, when you start thinking about Trey Young, by the way, I'll give our stats and info group a ton of credit for what they found on, on his 
ability to draw whistles, it actually looks like he's drawing fouls at about the same rate that he was during the regular season. So I think what's happening is we're seeing it, and it makes more of an impact in the game, so it hits harder. But this reminds me a little bit of what we saw with Luka and the Clippers. I mean, the Clippers, it took them a few games to figure out how they were going to defend Luka, and once they figured that out, you saw at least some minimizing of his impact. I won't say that they took him away, but they at least made life more difficult for him. Once they did that, Dallas didn't have another answer. So this is much the same chess match to me, and I think where you got to look at it and feel confident if you're Philly is that you do understand that this is going to be a series where it's about adjustments, and can Trey Young adjust to the adjustments made to him? I think that's where advantage goes Philly in this, but we'll learn a lot about that tonight. Ultimately, if they can simply reduce a little bit of Trey's effectiveness. I'm not sure who else for Atlanta can come out and do what needs to be done. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast, by the way. You can get all the stuff you might miss. I agree with you, Fitz, and I think I don't want to say all of sports media is lazy. There are some real incredible NBA experts who go deep into this stuff, but I do think it is much easier for us to attach all of the value blame credit to the players on the court because we don't really know what's going on with the coaches. When you do see those obvious signs, like I said before, Coach Bud throwing zones at a team like the Nets, which makes me want to pull my hair out, or refusing to switch on screens because that's how he operates, even when the situation calls for it. What you're seeing in this this Sixers and Hawks series, it's going to take a little bit more time and a couple more games to really figure out what the game plan is versus whether the players are executing it. But I think we will see a lot if they come more prepared to this. They did not look particularly inspired or prepared, despite the fact that that stadium was going off when it started, right? You got Triple H doing the crotch bump and banging the bell, and you know fans are going nuts and beads out there despite the injury. And you kind of expected the play to mirror that energy, and it, it didn't really. And that feels like it's about coaching. You heard Doc Rivers complain a bit about officiating on Trey Young, and that's probably just to get into the mind sort of subconsciously of the officials to be looking for that tonight. But it might also be to draw attention away from the fact that his game plan didn't work. Yeah, and I also think when it comes to energy, and you're talking about the Hawks particularly, they've got guys in Capella and obviously Trey Young that feed off of whatever. They seem to feed off of the villain status. So whatever energy the building gives, I don't know that it doesn't also feed them. So it's interesting to see how that plays. Yep, absolutely. We're going to see more of this uh, tonight, see how you know Doc decides to use that all-bench lineup. It seemed like a strange choice to do it when they were down double digits and didn't look strong. But all of that uh, second chance tonight for the Sixers to get it right. Coming up, Mark Medina of USA Today is going to talk to us about the Clippers. Will they Clipper again? Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Now, it wasn't that long ago. Everybody thought the Clippers were done, and that turned out obviously not to be the case as Kawhi and the Clippers put on their full 80s wrestling uh, act. Uh, You know, their arm goes down once, twice, and just before it hits the mat, it starts to shake, and all of Hulk Hogan, they fully go in, and they pull off the unexpected coming back to win that series. But the question is, what's left in the tank, and what will they now do in their next matchup against the Jazz. So to get us a little help on that, we are going to head over to the Goodyear Hotline where we're joined by USA Today's Mark Medina. Mark, thank you so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. So uh, let's start with sort of what we saw from 
this Clippers team that was a little Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, there were good moments, there were bad moments. So in your mind, do they go into this next series with a ton of momentum or do they go into this next series gassed? No, I think they go into the series with a lot of momentum. Uh, you know, the, the Clippers really felt like, you know, having to face the Dallas Mavericks and Luka Doncic in a really tough seven-game series battle-tested them. But I think the reality is the Utah Jazz just have way much more depth than the Dallas Mavericks do. Uh, you know, Mike Conley's going to be out for game one because of a hamstring injury. But, you know, they've been able to play without him and Donovan Mitchell at varying parts of the season because the reality is they have – Mitchell, they have Rudy Gobert, they have Jordan Clarkson, they have Joe Ingles, they have a lot of depth, a lot of continuity. So I think it's a stretch to think, okay, the Clippers now are in the driver's seat of a series because I still think the Jazz are a better team. But I think unlike last year when the Clippers squandered a 3-1 playoff series lead the Denver Nuggets, I don't think that they're going to fall short of a playoff run because of any underachieving or chemistry issues, I think it's going to come down to, hey, they probably faced a tougher team. You mentioned Conley being out. So without him, that means Mitchell will have to work even harder on offense and will likely be much more of a focus for either Kawhi or Paul George defending him. Uh, How do you think the team reacts and finds enough offense if Mitchell gets shut down or at least slowed down by either of those great defenders? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, based off of what Quinn Snyder said today, that a lot of it's going to fall on Donovan Mitchell. But, you know, the Jazz have a lot of depth and a lot of playmakers. So someone like Joe Ingles, like no one's going to mistake him for a point guard, but he's seen as a guy that can be a playmaker. Same with Jordan Clarkson. So I think, you know, they have enough depth where they can, you know, kind of make it by committee and not put so much burden on Donovan Mitchell, but at the end of the day, you know, he is their star player for a reason. And I think when you're looking at the Clippers, one game changer that, uh, you know, proved to be uh, a momentum shifter in the, in the playoff series against Dallas is just how they made adjustments with their rotation where they went small, um, you know, to just account for the fact that Visa Zubats was having a lot of trouble with Luka Doncic. So I think that that could propel the Clippers to continue with that. Um, But at the end of the day, I still think that the Jazz are entering game one with an advantage because I I think they have more talent, even with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George there. And I think that they've become accustomed to playing, you know, with the fact that Conley and, and Mitchell have had some overlapping injuries this season. We're talking to Mark Medina from USA Today on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So I'm not sure in a COVID world how much home court necessarily means, but this is the team in Utah with the best home record in the NBA, and it's a Clippers team that's now won three straight road playoff games. So uh, does home court play any sort of advantage in your mind in this series? Um, it could at least at the beginning, only because when you're looking at the protocols now, uh, the capacity for crowds is a lot bigger in Utah. I think it's around up to 14,000. In L.A., it's up to about 8,000. Other than filling those seats, it's, it's a lot of been cardboard cutouts at Staples Center. It looks a little tacky. Now, what could change is if there is a game six, that would take place on June 18th, and that's three days after in L.A. County that they're allowing for full capacity and everything being open without restrictions. So maybe in that case, a home court could help the Clippers. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, home court, even in normal times, is never the number one factor. It's usually health number one, team chemistry number two. So I think that's going to still be the same 
in this playoff series. Spain and Fitz here. Spain, Jason Fitz, Mark Medina of USA Today with us ahead of tonight's Clippers and Jazz game one. Uh, what do you make of the Clippers if they go to that small ball lineup and they force Gobert to have to go guard out on the wing? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it plays into what the Clippers want because they don't want Rudy Gobert having to just stay at the rim. I mean, I think that he's going to get defensive player of the year because, you know, he's a really good shot blocker. Uh, you know, he's led the Jazz into having uh, the best defensive rating this season. So I think it forces the Jazz not to be able to rely on their best defensive player and also testing their ability of, hey, do they have enough players to switch? Because they don't really have a true wing defender per se. If you're going to microanalyze the Jazz team, that's one area of weakness that they have. You know, that, that lack of like this, you know, really good small forward wing player. Um, but I think that, you know, the Jazz has spent this season trying to compensate for that with just making sure that they're playing at a really fast pace offensively and they're just getting up and down the floor and jacking up from three. And so far, that formula has worked. You know, they've ranked in the top five on both ends of the floor. Um, that you can really flip a coin on to whether that's going to make a difference or not. So, Mark, if the Jazz are able to basically, let's say they put Kawhi out on an island, let him get his, as we see so often in these playoff matchups, at some point, we're looking at Paul George. If they can minimize Paul George, who else from the Clippers can actually step up in this matchup to help them win this series? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the Clippers' advantages is that they do have a handful of kind of other type players, role players that could fulfill that need, whether it's Marcus Moore Sr. hitting some threes, Terrence Mann being a really young, up-and-coming talent that can – you know, really give them easy baskets and transition. Same thing with Luke Kennard. Um, but I think when you're looking at the Clippers here, Kawhi Leonard has shown that he can be that dominant star and, and be consistent and also being a presence on the defensive end. And Paul George, it's kind of up in the air. I think that to his credit, he has been a much different player than he was in the bubble, where last year when he was missing shots, he was completely a non-factor in those games where in this first round here, he wasn't having the best statistical outing, but he was still making up for getting a lot of rebounds, providing intangibles. But I don't think that's going to be enough against a jazz team. Maybe it was enough against Dallas because really it just came down to Luca and on occasion, Porzingis and Tim Hardaway Jr. providing a few plays, but here the jazz have a lot more depth. So it goes without saying that, Kawhi's got to be on his P's and Q's, but Paul George has to be the one-two punch to him as opposed to a guy that's providing decent intangibles. And if not, I think the, the series will go in the Jazz's favor. Hey, Mark, before we let you go, I've been very respectful of the Clippers, despite them consistently disappointing <laughs> me and making me look bad by being bad when I said they'd be good and being good when I said they'd be bad. So, you know, question that you really don't have an answer to, but I want to ask you anyway is there any reason to believe this Clippers team is different than the one that we saw disappear and reappear throughout the, the first series? I mean, do we think that they somehow gained any sort of meaningful mental edge from that that we can't easily say has been disproved last year and parts of this year already? Yeah, it's a fair question. Frankly, there's not an answer to that because for all the changes that the Clippers have made this offseason, you know, replacing Ty Lue for Doc Rivers, changing their front court, Len Montrezl Harrell, 
go to the Lakers, getting Serge Ibaka and Nicholas Batum, trading Lou Williams to get Rajon Rondo, they've still been inconsistent throughout the regular season. And, you know, keep in mind, last year in the bubble, they also survived a pretty competitive first-round series against the Dallas Mavericks. And I remember at the time, being down in the bubble, the feeling from the Clippers was, hey, this was a really competitive first-round matchup that is starting to get our juices flowing, and now we're dialed in. And it looked like that was the case when they're up 3-1 against the Nuggets, and then all of a sudden they went the other way. So I think that there is a recipe for them to go back to those habits. But I think in fairness to them, they also showed the fact that they were down 0-2. They rallied from a double-digit deficit in Game 3. They made a lot of tactical adjustments. And I think Paul George and the role players specifically have – been a lot better than Paul George and the role players during the first round last year. So when you combine all those things, I'm bullish that they're not going to fall short in the playoffs because of self-inflicted wounds, but I don't think that they're going to beat the Jazz uh, this upcoming series, just frankly because the Jazz are a much better team uh, than what they faced in Dallas. Mark, you got the Jazz. How many games does it take to make it happen? Uh, I, I would. I, I think it's going to be six games. Um, you know, I think it'll be a competitive series, but you know, I think the Jazz's depth will wind up being an overriding factor as well as their continuity. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Mark G underscore Medina, uh, Medina. Sorry, Mark. Uh, as always, and read him on USA Today. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I appreciate you guys. Be well. That's going to be an interesting series, and you know, uh, the one thing we know is that. Either way, if we hedge our bets, sir, we can go pro or anti-Clippers, and then we'll be right. Either way. That's yeah. what I'm going to start the, doing. The Clippers going to clip. Whatever that means is for you to decide. Take, take it for yourself. All right, coming up, what is spider tack, and why does it have everybody sort of tripping over their words? I f- felt at home through that one. Spain and Fitz on ESPN <laughs> Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Busy night in sports. we got a couple NBA playoff games from last night to react to. we got the games tonight to preview. And a bunch of other stuff, including a usually well-spoken person, suddenly tongue-tied. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. And whenever there's too much to get to, we handle it by doing quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. That's right. <laughs> Let's start with the college uh, women's college World Series. It's on right now. Number ten, Florida State. Number one, Oklahoma. In game one of the series, and fits some interesting conversations around the college women's World Series. Whether that's you know rain delays, games starting at midnight, midnight. the need for uh, yeah, the need for a uh, a buffer day sort of between the, uh, the 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 first games and then and then the championship series. Um, there's all sorts of conversations, and the one that I'm focusing on is 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 the game today and this series that pits a double digit seed one one double digit seed has won the tourney ever. That's the, that's the Seminoles at number ten, and then you've got the top uh, ranked Sooners who are looking for their third in the last five tournaments. So they are a blue blood for sure. Both of these teams lost their very first game and then had to win four straight single elimination to get to the title. Uh, so kind of a shared uh, – it's it's hard to say that one or the other has, has earned our loyalty or our belief based on them taking almost the same path. Yeah, and by the way, when you talk about often, and I think it's a smart point, that there are great stories to tell around women's sports that we need to tell. This World Series has given us that with all the drama that we've mm-hmm. gotten. My only bummer is, as you mentioned, the 12th – I think it was 1230 uh, that we had a first pitch in a game. and, and yeah. But the the flip side of that is – 
the Twitter conversation was all over it. And I'm like, this is amazing. At 1.30, yeah. you got people. This is to- the game that's on. And when you got a player like Odyssey who's out there just, you know, all of a sudden telling people, I'm here, this is my story. When you have a cool upstart like JMU doing what they did, it gets people talking. So uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Jess Mendoza is going to join us, by the way, tomorrow to talk about some of those other stories uh, around the College Women's World Series. Um, fastest growing sport in college sports. A massive, mm. massive revenue. 339%. Uh, revenue uh, increase in the last 10 years. This is uh, something to keep an eye on and make sure you're watching. Uh, All right, next story. Quickies. Something to keep an eye on also is the sudden interest in something called spider tack. And all of a sudden, as the MLB is looking to crack down even more on foreign substances, which is a catch-all term that we've used for whatever it is that a pitcher might have on their hat, in their pocket, on their hand, wherever they store it, to use on the ball as MLB is trying to crack down on this, all of a sudden people are paying attention to something called spider tech to the point where journalists are asking the makers of spider tech, what they think of its prevalence in the game to which uh, at least one said, I didn't even know people were using it in baseball, but the best response to any spider tech question has been superstar Yankees ace Garrett Cole, who is usually great with the media, but had a little trouble answering the very, very simple question. Have you ever used spider tech? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know quite, I don't quite know how to answer that, to be honest. Um, there are customs and practices that have been passed down from older players to younger players, from the last generation of players to this generation of players. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, I think there are some things that are certainly out of bounds in that regard, and and uh, I've stood pretty stood pretty firm in, in terms of that, uh, in terms of the communication between our peers and whatnot, um, you know. And and I again, like I mentioned earlier, there's you know this is important to a lot of people that love the game, and this is including including the players in this room, including fans, including you know teams. And so if MLB wants to you know legislate. Some more stuff. That's a conversation that we can have um, because ultimately we should all be pulling in the same direction on this. Did you order the code red? (laughs) (laughs) Fitz, I will say the honest part about that, I think, was at the very end where he was essentially saying, if we all want to stop doing it, let's all be in agreement to all stop doing it. Let's have a conversation. Let's all stop doing it. I'm not going to admit to it, nor am I going to stop if everybody else is doing it. And if everybody else is doing it, then they should expect me. Like, that part seemed honest. Uh, Well, yes, but it also seemed ill-prepared for something I would have thought he knew was coming. I mean, uh, the the conversation over the last week and a half, two weeks, has gone to a loud yell about, you know, the conversation even with our umps going to be coming to the mound multiple times to check pitchers and make sure that nobody's doing anything wrong. Like, you have to know this conversation is coming, and you're going to be asked questions about it. So, I'm surprised to see someone so media smart seem in that moment so ill-prepared to answer a very basic question. Yeah, I agree with you, although maybe the point is he has the integrity to not want to lie but Mm. doesn't know how to answer that question unless it's a lie. So has to just spin, spin, spin the wheels. And by the way, the best thing for spin is spider tech. Uh, A spin rate increased by more than 25% (laughs) when you use spider tech instead of a sunscreen and rosin mix. So uh, he got the spin he was looking for on his pitches and on that answer. It's Spain and Fitz. We're doing something called Quickies. Next story. Quickies. So 
there's a there's a lot of stories in the NHL playoffs that we're not getting to. And Fitz and I both have admitted to not being quite as invested as we might have been in previous years. There's just so much going on. But one thing that is going on is sort of a hilarious rant from the head coach of the Bruins, Cassidy. Coach Cassidy arguing that, you know, it's really unfair that the Islanders are getting so much benefit of the doubt because they have a respected coaching staff and respected front office. And the Bruins just getting aren't getting the same calls because apparently they're not respected, which, ouch, self-own on that one. But the interesting thing fits about this is that if you look at the regular season, the Islanders were the least penalized team in the NHL. And the Bruins were the third most penalized. So you've already established that the very, very weak premise is that every official during the regular season was operating on the same premise that the Islanders are this respected team that doesn't penalize, you know, uh, doesn't get called for penalties and that the Bruins should be overly called for it. So that premise that somehow every single official agreed during the regular season to this. But even though the Islanders were the least penalized and the Bruins were the third most for the series that they're playing in right now. Each team has received exactly 13 power plays and 40 penalty minutes. So you are arguing that you're not getting the calls when the calls have been exact, despite the fact that you came in with completely different uh, narratives and reputations for how often you should and have been penalized. It just, it boggles the mind. And he's now been fined, so tack that on top of it. Yeah, and at some point you got to look at it and say, yeah, not every call is right in every game. But some teams are called for more penalties because they commit more, and some mm-hmm. are called for hmm. less because they uh, commit huh. less. Like, it's right. not rocket science here. By the way, right. Vegas tied 2-2 in their series. Mm-hmm. Also, so by the way, if the little ball of hate is on your squad, I'm going to go ahead and say that you're probably going to get a few more penalties called, and you're going to deserve them. Because that's that's sort of Brad Marchand's <laughs> M.O. I mean, his name is literally the little ball of hate. His approach to the game is literally the little ball of hate. I don't think we should be surprised. Um, we've also got uh, a Roger story to get to. Uh, and we're going to get to it with our next guest. Because I want to ask both Fitz and our next guest, should the Packers fine Aaron Rodgers for missing camp? Or should they let it slide with a peace gesture? And what does that precedent set? It's next. Panic throughout Wisconsin on Rodgers and the Bucks. Our next guest will help wade us through it. It's Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. There's probably not a city more puckered up in the sports world today than, or state, I should say, than Wisconsin, where they're trying to figure out how to make sense of what's happening to the Nets or to, oh, I'm all over the place to the Bucks. You can tell that I just I, I'm, I'm done, Sarah. You know I tried. Is your I tried sphincter also puckered? I tried. You know, puckered. Sitting here <laughs> just trying to get through the beginning of a segment, and it's just not going my way. So I'm just going to try it all over again. They're really nervous in Wisconsin right mm-hmm. now, and we need yep. help figuring it out. Spain and Fitz on ESPN <laughs> Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. During the break, I did not learn to speak. Jason Fitz, Sarah Spain, presented by Progressive Insurance. We're going to head straight over to the Goodyear Hotline to somebody that we know knows how to speak to the person. Person that when things are going wrong in Wisconsin, I feel like this show constantly says the, the little you up text because we need guidance. <laughs> so Jen Latta joins us. Uh, Jen, as always, we come to you trying to figure out the pulse of Wisconsin. Let's start with the Bucks because I didn't see it coming. I thought, you know what, it's going to be a good series. I thought they were going to win this series. I felt really good about Milwaukee, been hyping them up. Now they're down 2 nothing, and they've been blown out in both games. So what is the overall temperature right now from Bucks fans? Well, listen, Fitz, don't feel too bad about thinking that way headed into the series because all of the evidence in front of you would lead you to that conclusion, right? You can only make a, a guess based on the information in front of you. And the Bucks have looked 
like a team that was uh, reaching, you know, gaining momentum as the season went on and looked, especially after that series against the Miami Heat, like they could be a juggernaut in this postseason. So don't feel bad about taking that approach. This is just an awful, embarrassing showing by a team that, that should do better, that has the talent to be better, that knows better how to handle themselves in a postseason situation. So, we had some pals over for the game last night, and you know it's not going well, as you guys saw when you were watching it. And so midway through the second quarter, I just started comically whistling the theme to the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> and my buddy finally looks over and goes, what are you doing? I said, does anyone else feel like it's New Year's Eve right now, and the Nets are the Globetrotters, and the Bucks are the hapless generals? Like, I half expected at one point Kevin Durant to, like, tuck it behind his neck and dunk it that way, like something crazy, because it just seems so lopsided. I had never seen a game that was so lopsided from a talent standpoint. The Bucks felt like they were dr- dribbling the ball off their foot and struggling at the rim. And I know there's been a ton of, you know, breakdown of the film and a- analysis of what went wrong. But to me, it was a confidence thing. Like, it looked like they had lost – they had forgotten how to play basketball. They had lost their confidence, which brings me to another scene that I know you guys will appreciate. Did it or did it not seem like a scene from Space Jam where those little creatures stole the talent from Charles Barkley and from (laughs) Patrick Ewing and from Muggsy Bogues, and they were just out there, like, not knowing what to do? Like, I pictured Charles Barkley, like – wandering around the lane not knowing where to go that's what these bucks looked like last night and we don't really have any answers other than they played right into the Nets' hand that's what the nets wanted them to do they wanted them to look hapless they wanted them to deviate from their game plan and kind of fall into their trap and that's what it looked like happened jen ladd is with us here on spain and fits yeah i mean it, thank god that uh james harden was out otherwise it would have been a blowout right um yeah, I do want to I do want to ask you, are you feeling at all optimistic that this was a early out and they just said, OK, this isn't a, this isn't our game and they feel better going into the next one than had it been another fairly close loss? I mean, everything I'm hearing from inside the building is that these guys are, you know, they don't get too high. They don't get too low. That's been their mantra. You know, Giannis was notoriously like high charge, you know, kind of wear every loss. And there weren't that many of them, you know, for the previous season, especially during the regular season, but would wear them and they would be heavy on him. And so this year that was another evolution of him as a pro was kind of going with the flow and not getting too high and not getting too low. So they're really trying to implement that as they wait for Thursday night's game. So I guess I'm hoping that that's the mindset that they're taking. I'm hoping that they were able to flush this game. Um, I really don't know what you would take from it. Um, Maybe – don't play zone against the Nets. Like I really am like struggling for like what you would gain from watching that tape. So this feels like the age old, you know, sports cliche of just flush it. Don't even watch the film, get back to what you do best. Um, Really surprised that they weren't attacking the rim more really surprised at how hesitant Giannis looked. And it feels guys like the great ones in the game know when you have to take over a game and when you can defer to some of the talent around you. And I feel like Giannis is still learning that, right? He hasn't hit that like happy medium, that sweet spot of, nah, man, you're, you're one of the most talented guys on the floor. You've got to take over right now because the other guys aren't hitting their shots. The other thing that really stunned me was how much they were playing hero ball. You know, you're not going to make up a 20-point deficit. You know, I understand you want to exchange threes for twos, but – you know, you got to set up your offense. you got to run your offense. And there were times where they would be in transition and just jack up a three. And you were like, well, that I, I, I get it. 
you're trying to quicken the process, but it wasn't working for them at all. So get back to what has worked for them. And that, of course, is being, you know, ball movement, being a dominant team inside. And I'm hoping that they get back to that on Thursday. Spain and Fitz there, Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. We're talking to Jen Latta on the Goodyear hotline. So, Jen, uh, let's let's turn the page then. You know, if, if everything feels bad there, at least you have the pack. Oh, I can't even say it. Okay, so <laughs> now we have no a no-show on a mandatory appearance for Aaron Rodgers. This is the first mandatory camp moment for the organization. Aaron Rodgers isn't there. So they have the opportunity as an organization to decide to fine him. Those fines are roughly $93,000, I believe. Uh, If you're the organization, are you extending the olive branch and saying, hey, don't worry about it? Or are you fining him and saying, hey, we got rules. You need to be here. A million percent you extend that olive branch. Like that should be a no-brainer at this point. You know, there are some people in this state who feel – that when the um, president of the Packers, Mark Murphy, went on to the Packers website this past weekend and answered some fans' questions, he took some unnecessary shots at Rodgers. I didn't really see it that way. I thought he was kind of trying to use the platform to kind of get the brasses side of things out, which is to say that the situation is dividing the fan base. But he certainly did give a unprompted endorsement of, of at least Brian Gutekunst, who now, you know, is a guy who many people probably never knew his name, but now know him as like the arch rival of his future Hall of Fame quarterback in Aaron Rodgers. And I think that that type of stuff can rub Rodgers the wrong way. So anything you can do to try to show him any type of good faith gesture that you really do want him back, that this isn't just posturing, that this isn't just lip service, I think would go a long way to resolving this. You know, we had Jason Wilde on our show this morning, and he said, I don't think this is beyond repair. And Wilde communicates with the quarterback pretty regularly, so I don't think that's coming from just a speculation standpoint. I think he's getting that indication from Aaron Rodgers. Um, But he said that he thinks that this is something that that could be fixable. Now it's just figuring out, guys, what Aaron wants. And I think that is the million-dollar question. What do you want? You talk about philosophy. You talk about culture. You talk about character. I don't know how those things change unless they get rid of the people he believes are central to what he considers the problematic culture. So that to me feels like that fine line of, well, maybe he hasn't said that he wants certain people fired, but if you want to change the culture, tell me how you go about doing that without a clean sweep of that personnel. Jim, we got to let you go, but I have to ask you a question quickly because, you know, at first glance, I agree you extend the olive branch. But my concern is, even though we all know that different players have different rules and superstars certainly do, what kind of precedent do you set in saying we're not going to fine you for the very obvious decision not to participate in something, especially as other team members are now having to answer for your absence? They're having to work without you. You're not preparing for the season. To me, it feels like better to extend the fine, but circle real big that the payment date is like two years from now or something, right? Make it clear that you're hoping that in between the time that that would be due and now you can come together and figure it out, but you're also not going to just say we're completely getting rid of all of the rules and standards for you. No, I totally agree. I mean, that's been one of my biggest, the toughest things for me to swallow personally is that Aaron expects this special treatment, which we all agree that special players deserve Or does he expect it or do they do they extend it? I don't know. We haven't asked him if he expects it. He might expect to get fined. Well, I think it's interesting, Sarah, though, that he seems to expect the brass, which has been really successful, right? You and I are Bears fans, man. So, like, we know, like, it can be very difficult to put together a successful organization. And back-to-back NFC 
title games is pretty good. Like trying to sit here and say that Brian Gutekunst and, and Matt LaFleur and Russ Ball, who handles the salary cap, haven't done a good job and need to change the way that they do their jobs. I don't know how you how you nail that down. I don't know how you necessarily come to that conclusion. And I think a lot of fans feel here in Wisconsin like, okay, so they have to change. What does Aaron have to do? Like, is there anything he has to do to mend the relationship, to be a better communicator, to make, you know, make sure that he's doing everything he can to create a good culture, to create a good philosophy, to create, you know, a good character type of thing. So I think that there is, there feels like for some fans, a little hypocrisy there. And I think you're right. This is why there's so much nuance to this situation. It's why we have spent the last four weeks plus, you know, dissecting it every single morning on our show. You guys can follow her on Twitter at Jen Latta and listen to her on ESPN Milwaukee. Check her out across all of the ESPN platforms. Jen, as always, we appreciate your time, my friend. Hope you have a uh, – it's, it's a very eventful summer, but I hope you get a little relaxation in there in the meantime. Can I tell you guys something? I can't think of the word sphincter or pucker without thinking of Sarah Spain. So good on you, Sarah. Feel great that about that. The brand branding. is strong. Is, yeah. <laughs> the brand is very strong. See you guys. America. <laughs> ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. And Progressive, they're making things even easier. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you can save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. All right, we just asked Jen what should happen with Aaron Rodgers. When we come back, I'll tell you why I totally disagree. They should not extend the olive branch. I'll explain myself. Plus, some rumors on college football that you do not need to worry about. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. That segment started about as well for me as this game has started for Atlanta, by the way, who's just getting railroaded by Philly so far. So uh, right now we've got 31-17, to 17, uh, almost the end of the first. So maybe Atlanta will get it figured out. But Sarah's I got being no Jason worries. Fitz. Sixers uh, and five. Oh, <laughs> bringing it back. Cliff, the resident 76ers fan, very, very confident. Uh, Sarah, I wanted to quickly address what you were asking, Jen Latta, as uh, Aaron Rodgers is not reported for mandatory camp. He can be fined. Uh, the question is, should the team fine him? And this is really just a statement to me. Everything from that, from this point forward is about the future negotiations. So the only reason I wouldn't extend an olive branch if I'm uh, the Packers is because what I really want to make sure that Aaron Rodgers fully understands is that we're going to come after you. Like, you don't have an option here. You play for us or you don't play at all. I mean, I think that's the only line in the sand that they can draw, so it would be the way I handle it. What do you mean by that? You mean, like, we're going to make it impossible for you because you're going to have to sit? We're not going to trade you? Yeah, I don't think there's any chance they trade him this year. Got it. Okay, so show up. You're not getting traded. Holding out isn't going to help. We're going to force you to just keep bleeding money. And you don't think that's going to make things worse if your intention is to keep the MVP? I think at some point what's happened is, you know, with everybody making their trips and everybody begging him to play, at some point you've got to say, hey, we've done all we can do, so now we're going to change the message. I guess the problem is we need to know the contents of those discussions, you know, because for as much as they've said we keep extending olive branches, we keep meeting with them, we keep offering him deals, why wouldn't he be taking a contract extension if they really offered him a worthy one? Why wouldn't they have renegotiated and rejiggered his deal so that he wouldn't be, you know, you know, floating in the wind? What's the phrase I'm looking for at the end of this season? Yeah. Right. Yeah. If if they had done the things and I'm not saying that they have to do everything he wanted. I'm just curious if we don't know what those things are. It feels very odd for him to be holding out if what they're actually offering is commensurate with what he's deserved. 
Well, then that only reinforces my mindset, though. If they have, if they haven't offered him any of those things, if they've taken the time to go out and meet with him and basically disrespected him the whole way, why stop now? I mean, it feels like pride is a big part of this for both sides, right? Right. And so the pride portion of it from the front office organization where they've already come out and back Gutekunst, I think, is there partially their way of saying, hey, we're not going to change the way we're doing business for you. And if that's really the case, then your only recourse is to say, hey, you got to write us a $32 million check to not play here this year. So if you really don't want to play, cool, we'll take the check and we'll just hold your rights. And And that's it's a pride-filled argument, but I feel like that's where we are in the conversation both sides is having. Yeah, and that's why I don't know that it will necessarily be an easy one to reconcile and figure out. I do think that one of the only answers, is save for the firing of Gutekunst, which isn't likely, is trading love and recognizing that you have a couple more years uh, promising and extending Rodgers and then figuring out the next step because you can't hang on to the safety plan if you've still got the current plan for, for really any longer. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Also want to get you caught up on news you don't need to care about. And that, like, we're just always going to be honest with you about what's important and what's not important. So the college football playoff uh, is there's consideration and a group of commissioners have come together and they are discussing the possibility of proposing expansion. But Sarah, we say this every time and I think it's important. You know, I've, I've so far since this came out, now I've texted three different people that I think would be in the know to what's going on. And the comments been the same from everyone. They may come together in a room and decide that expansion is a smart thing. And through that process, they may recommend expansion. But even if they do, it's still years down the road before that actually comes into place. We could be looking at two or three years from now before it kicks. So while there's a level of interest in what's going to happen in the college football playoff, I just think it's important to remind everybody that nothing is imminent. Yeah, I think you said it all in the first sentence. They may come together to discuss the possibility of proposing expansion. <laughs> Allegedly. Potentially. <laughs> There's a chance. Move on. Oh, oh. Let's move on. Oh, my God. Spade and Fitz on ESPN Radio. One thing that we do know today is we know who got some hardware in the NBA. And I don't think there's a big surprise in Coach of the Year. Uh, we, we've discussed it a little on this show, but Tibbs comes in to New York, a combination of the great job he did and the fact that it's the Knicks. I think everybody had all eyes on it. I, I have no problem with Tibbs being the resounding Coach of the Year, right? Like, that felt like that was the right move. for. It for was. I mean, Monty Williams had a good case. I was listening to the to the Woj pod. And, not the Woj pod. Sorry, Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. And there was some saltiness from, from some of the folks on there that there were those who put Monty Williams as a three instead of a two because mm. I think Monty Williams actually got more first place votes than Tibbs but because when you added up all the votes he got also got much more three third place votes than Tibbs Tibbs ends up being the winner I think you can't go wrong with either one yeah I, I, a thousand percent agree I just wasn't just surprised with the way it turned out also not surprised that Jokic won the MVP today but a little surprised that Jokic won the MVP in a landslide. So as much as there was conversation about how tight it might be, it was not at all. Jokic receives 971 total points. Uh, that beats Joel Embiid, who finished in second, by almost 400 points. And by the way, he got 91 out of 100 possible first-place votes. So really Huge. overwhelmingly the MVP. Yeah, and Fitz, you know, one of the issues with this award that we bring up every year is, is, is the semantics of it all. Is it the most valuable player on the best team? Is it the best player in the league? Is it someone's turn, right? It was very strange last year when Giannis got uh, a second in a row because that's very rare. Usually it's sort of like, let's spread this award around. And, you know, 
Harden and, and Durant, the injuries plus taking away time and votes from each other, that's going to keep them out of it. Um, Steph Curry, the, the, the quality of the team is what took him out of it. Chris Paul was sort of a late run. Joel Embiid was the, the most likely guy to push Jokic, and you could really put together a good argument for him. But I agree with this pick as well. Um, I'm a little confused by the Derrick Rose vote, but you know what? <laughs> People are into what they're into, I guess. Well, and Embiid, by the way, overwhelmingly got the most second-place votes. Uh, not a surprise. I was a little surprised to see Chris Paul finish all the way at fifth, uh, considering how good Phoenix has been and how special his season particularly has been uh, throughout the course of the year. So, But we have some hardware for what it's worth. It's a regular season award. So I wanted to get you caught up on that. Speaking of it, you caught up, got a great movie that's going to be coming out that sports fans everywhere will love. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. 35-27 on Atlanta. We'll keep you updated on that game. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Happy to be joined now in the Goodyear Hotline by Abby Greensfelder, the founder and CEO of Every Woman Studios, which is putting out a film I can't wait to see, LFG. If you don't know what that stands for, you should be watching a whole lot more U.S. Women's National Team soccer and NWSL and just soccer in general because LFG is the rallying cry of our uh, great female athletes from that team and also the name of the film set to talk about the uh, quest for equal pay and everything else relating to some of the most popular and beloved women athletes in our country. Abby, thanks so much for the time. I'm so excited for this movie. When you look at this ongoing fight for equal pay, how do you decide how to approach that in the film as it's not yet resolved? Yeah, it's a really good question. And first off, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, And Sarah, love all you've done, particularly talking about sort of women's stories and sports. So kudos to you. Um, And Jason, you're also awesome. Thanks. So I... I think this is a great story. You know, it's a cultural touchstone for us as women now. And really the story sort of mirrors a story that as women we all can relate to, which is the issue of being paid equally. Um, But in thinking about how to tell this story, when the women on International Women's Day in 2019 Um, when they announced their lawsuit on International Women's Day. And I read the story, um, and I had talked to someone close to the team. I thought to myself, this is a story that needs to be told, right? Because here you have women all banding together as a group to do something that they feel like is right, but takes enormous bravery and courage and is really hard to do, which is to sue your employer, your employer who you've spent your whole career preparing and wanting to work for. And so to, to try and tell that story required figuring out a way to do it right. And the way that we felt we would do the story most justice is to really tell it in the voices of the women themselves. So we very much wanted to get members of the team, both current and past to take us inside this fight, which as you all may know, has been going on for many, many years in terms of trying to get equality and parity between the women's U.S. women's soccer team and the U.S. men's soccer team, and frankly, just for women in sports in general. So um, I partnered with uh, filmmakers at Fine Films, and we together 
alongside Propagate Content, our other partner, felt that, you know, we really wanted to tell this through a very personal lens versus doing kind of a history of the U.S. team or um, so it, in that sense of it's a very personal film and it's a very intimate film and follows these sort of verite moments with them through this fight, which I think makes it feel very, makes it feel very personal and relatable. Yeah. Sure. And with that being said, Abby, like when you're looking at the fight and you're right, it's been going on for a very long time. Where's the wall? Like, where's the resistance in the fight to just to, to, to just accomplish quality when it comes to pay? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that it's a very complex issue and making this film and trying to understand the different pay structures and the way that the, the economics work is very complex. But basically, you know, when you get down to it, you have a situation where, you know, you have FIFA on the one hand, who's the purse for winning the World Cup is not equal, right, between what what women's teams get and men's teams get. But that's not the focus of the lawsuit. The lawsuit is really as it relates to U.S. soccer, who employs both the men and the women's teams. How is that, how is the pay there divided? And... Really, it goes down to um, both the question of are the women paid the same and is the rate of pay the same? And effectively, no, it hasn't been. So the women have had to win more games and ostensibly compete better in order to get paid the same or more than men. In fact, they actually got paid more over the period of time that this lawsuit was um, investigated. And that was because they were so successful. They won all their friendlies. They won a bunch of World Cups. They won everything. (laughs) So the kind of, I think the very relatable metaphor here for kind of every woman anywhere, anyone who's not paid the same as a counterpart because of uh, an issue that's not related to your skill, because I think we could all see objectively that these women are the best at what they do in the world like undisputably their record is unrivaled but they for the same job they have had to work or achieve you know 5x or 7x to make the same amount and that's not what equal looks like so it's about the goal here is to recalibrate you know their goal is to recalibrate that and on this journey what we learn is how hard it is to to achieve that, you know, because the question of the walls, there are a lot of walls, you know, right. there is. Well, and Abby, you know, the they're fighting their own federation, like your point, they're, they're fighting exactly. their own employer who they also need in order to continue competing. It's a monopoly in the sense that they and can't go successful. play elsewhere for the same, same thing. Um, and again, to remind people, this is, and we're talking to Abby Greensfeld, the founder and CEO of Every Woman Studios and her upcoming film, LFG, about the U.S. Women's National Team and their equal pay fight. A reminder that this is very different than, say, the WNBA, because this is a nonprofit federation whose stated goal is to grow the game for boys and girls, women and men. So the inequalities in funding for the men's and girls and boys and women's programs um, is is intrinsic to what they're supposed to be doing is inequality of the support. And that's why this fight is so frustrating um, for, for many. And of course, because of the success they've had, you know, Abby, I'm curious because, you know, every woman studios is about telling female focused stories. And I wonder in your time in the industry where you've done other, you know, iconic things like say yes to the dress, which by the way, I watch like every day before my wedding. <laughs> um, what, 
was a final moment or incident that made you think, you know, we need every woman studios. I want to, you know, address the gender gap and, and actually create something that answers to it. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you watched say yes to the dress. I've learned, <laughs> learned more about a lines and oh my gosh, yeah, uh, mermaid cuts and all these <laughs> things over the years. Um, I think that, you know, I came up through the media business at a time of enormous organic growth. And I actually was both, have been both a network executive and a production executive. One of the things that I've seen, especially in the unscripted business, which is sort of real stories, documentaries, unscripted, is that, you know, when I was at Discovery, there are these certain spaces, you know, outdoor science, natural history, um, exploration that all for whatever reason just have men in them. And the thinking went because these channels were male skewing, you know, like ESPN had a male skewing audience that therefore that audience would not tolerate women in those content spaces. And so this is something I felt keenly, both as someone who was programming these channels for years and then as a producer was developing shows and you know, we would, I would do my best as a producer to have different kinds of people in these spaces, but often, you know, it's the same, we see the same kind of people over and over again. So I very much felt that in order to kind of switch out that cycle um, of only men will watch male skewing programs and only women will watch female skewing programs, well, why couldn't we just have women in these stories that's appealing to everyone in the same way that you know, women will watch men and, right, it's all about entertaining content. So really that was the impetus for every woman was to find a way to put women in the story but make it appeal to everyone. But to do that in a way like a story like LFG, I do think that this is a story that will appeal to all audience, male, female, you know, old and young, because of the swagger of these characters, because of their personalities, because of their bravery of the fight and it's a dramatic story yeah um it just so happens that these are women that are the central characters in the story and by the way they are not all the same and that's part of what our mission is at every woman studios is to put you know gradation around characters and give some shade to the differences that were not all the same so that was really the impetus was just seeing that there were these gaps and wanting to do something about it I love it. And yeah, I think these women are a perfect subject for that. As I like to say, they were not just aspirational to me, but eventually became instructional. And it was, I don't want to just dream of being you, but I want to follow your lead in the choices that you're making in your lives and the ways that you're reacting to society and the limitations it's put on you. So I can't wait to see the movie. I can't wait to, um, you know, to uh, get into conversations about the movie once it's out. Uh, People will be able to see it on HBO Max on June 24th. The world premieres at the Tribeca Film Festival June 17th. Abby Greensfelder, thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Abby. Thank you guys so much, and I appreciate uh, all that you're doing to talk about, especially women in sports that you do regularly on your show. So thank you for that. Of course. Awesome stuff. I really can't wait to see that movie. She was brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. It's Spain and Fitz. I'm going to check in on what's going on in Philly, and we're going to ask the question we've all been asking for what feels like an eternity. Are the Clippers going to clip? Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz hanging out with you on a Tuesday night. We only have two nights of shows this week, tonight and tomorrow. We're off Thursday, Friday, so soak it all up. Enjoy it. If you missed some previous shows, subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can catch all the interviews and commentary that you might have missed, uh, including earlier when Fitz admitted to being wrong. He was a, he was a big person. He owned up to a bad take. And I wasn't, and I refuse to apologize to the Clippers, and we'll find out later tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern on TNT, when the Clippers and Jazz face off in Game 1, whether they are the Clippers that uh, I believed in for years or the Clippers I gave up on middle of the last round before they made me look stupid by winning. And uh, we're going to get to that. (laughs) But we got to get to this Hawks-Sixers game. Uh, Started off real hot for the 76ers, absolutely blowing away the Hawks. I believe it was a, a offense based entirely around Tobias Harris, just smoking dudes. Uh, but the Hawks are creeping their way back in. 51-42 with about two minutes to play in the second quarter. Uh, earlier, our producer for the day, Cliff, uh, gave us his take on the series. I got no worries. Sixers and five. <laughs> mm. So probably feeling a little better about that proclamation uh, earlier in the game. Now it's getting a little tighter. We'll see if the Sixers can hang on. Uh, Fitz, I I wanted to bring up something we talked about briefly earlier, and that was Doc Rivers sort of making a very public appeal about the way they were calling Ben Simmons specifically, but in general, the defense on Trey Young. And I got no problem with him doing that. It's kind of a bad look for a number one seed, right? You're not usually trying to make those appeals. You're usually doing that if you're the underdog and need to find underhanded ways to get on top. But I do think sometimes it's wise to get in the brains of the officials and the fans, right? If the fans are are watching and they are reacting strongly and loudly to calls that they don't think Trey Young has earned, that might subconsciously affect how the officials call the game. Yeah, I mean, this all becomes sort of posturing, right, and trying to figure out how to send a message for the rest of the series. And that that makes some sense. But I do feel in general as – you know, you see right now as Embiid get, puts off, pushes off a little bit, gets a little uh, heated in the action, gets te- uh, teed up. There's a spot for me where I'm just wondering if all these guys take acting classes because, I mean, the way they right. react to every call and non-call, it all feels like long-term posturing where everybody's trying to impact the way the officials see the future of the series and the rest of that game by the way they're acting throughout the course of every single call or non-call that happens. It's really stunning to me to just watch the physical reaction from players, and I roll my eyes to it. Like, yeah. I just, just get out there and play. It's not good for the game. And I sound like get-off-my-lawn old lady. I got no problem with keeping it tightly called in terms of those real flagrants, right? Safety is at play here, and you have to keep it reined in. you got to call it tightly enough where the teams don't get out of control. At the same time, the number of times they got to go look at it and decide if it was a flagrant or if it went past a common foul, and the number of times the game is interrupted by us watching guys whine about every play and every non-call, it isn't good for the game. It makes for a less enjoyable watch, and... I know this is going to be something we argue off and on about forever once, you know, we have the kind of replay technology that we do. How important is it to get it right when everyone at home saw what happened? Yeah, it is, but so is game flow. And I don't know how you can can protect guys or stop guys from complaining so darn much, but it's not as fun to watch. Yeah, there's a spot. Spain and Fitz, by the way. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. 
we have to think about sort of the human element from the officials. Uh, I feel like they're in their heads. And uh, that's never a good thing when you feel like you're doubting every call that you make. And the way that they go back and analyze and overanalyze every single call within the game, it just feels like even the officials are constantly second-guessing themselves. I understand with the, the premise of, hey, let's get it right. Let's make sure that we've gotten the call Right, especially at big times in the game. I, I get that theory, but at some point, to your point, like, where's the human element of just understanding, hey, refs are going to make some bad calls. They're going to blow some calls. That's going to happen. You still just go out and play the game. It, it has become very segmented to watch an NBA game at times because of, uh, frankly, the way it's officiated, more so than the game flow, because the way the game itself is played, like we were talking during the break, modern NBA offense is actually, I mean, the number of possessions is through the roof. It's a very yeah. high-paced game. It's just the officiating pulls that pace back down. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. So we'll keep an eye on how the officiating is affecting this game, certainly in the second half. If any of those guys get in foul trouble, um, Trey Young can go off at any time. Also, we're watching Joel Embiid get his knee looked at a little bit on the sideline doesn't seem to be uh, too big of a problem, at least without the audio here as we're watching on mute. But uh, we will be keeping an eye, of course. There's a lot of guys that haven't had a ton of success uh, being able to play on meniscus issues. So there was always a risk in putting them out here. Um, and now the Philadelphia 76ers have to try to hold on to this lead, even with Embiid taking a rest here. Uh, the other game tonight, of course, is uh, – is a game that it's truly anyone's guess. And I have not, Fitz, heard a single expert on basketball definitively be able to explain what exactly determines the Clippers' output. Why are they the paper clips one night? Why are they the team that looks good on paper on another? Um, and, and, you know, I refuse to believe in them in the long term. I think it's a mental thing. And I think it's a leadership thing. I think it's fine to not have a bunch of big personalities, but you need to have a couple vocal leaders. And when your two main guys are Paul George, who at times has literally shrugged off the idea that losing in historic fashion means anything or that it was a, a, a big, important year to win last year. And then Kawhi Leonard is a tremendous talent, but is not vocal in any meaningful way. I think that's tough it, it, when you get into the dark and, and difficult times. Yeah, well, I, you're not wrong. And look, we saw an NBA champion last year in the Lakers that I thought in the bubble was at times maddeningly inconsistent. Like, it's like they cared and they killed. And when they didn't care, they just sort of skated through and lost some games along the way. So, you know, we've seen some precedent that you can be less engaged and make it work. But uh, that's a much different situation than it feels like the Clippers are in this year, and particularly as good as the rest of the West is. I mean, uh, this isn't a situation where the Clippers walk in and even on paper are drastically better than everybody else. So you're going to have to find some consistent output of effort. And that's the hardest thing for me. I have no problem with a good team or a bad team. I have a problem with a team that is somewhere towards the side of good, but just doesn't bring it often enough for you to know what to expect because that makes it truly impossible to predict how a series is going to look. Like, you know Kawhi's going to be great when his back's up against the wall. He showed that against Luka. But where was that element of urgency through the rest of the series? Why do you have to get to that spot when you are a champion like he has been or like that the guys in that organization have been around? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, and I think also this first game is a really great way to look at matchups and, you know, unfortunately, it will be different with Conley out, um, and that is going to allow the defense to really key in on Mitchell. 
Um, Leonard or George will be on him nonstop for the majority of this game in the series, and he won't be able to look to Conley to offset some of that pressure. And then, like we talked about earlier, are the Clippers going to try to go to small ball and force Gobert to have to guard out on the wing and play outside of the paint, or are they going to trust in their big man? And and all of these matchups are going to be uh, kind of played out over the course of this first game and then the adjustments. And like I said before, one of the things we don't talk about enough because we don't really know it is how big of a deal coaching is. Yeah, I can't disagree with anything you just said. And that's where the Clippers are going to separate, right? That That's where the expectations should come for this organization. I never want to get away from the expectations we have for this Clippers team the way it was built. They were supposed to be championship contenders. So mm-hmm. uh, there are expectations, rightfully so. By the way, 7 nothing right now, Florida State over Oklahoma, top of the fourth in the College World Series Championship Woo! Finals, game one. Uh, go watch that on ESPN in addition to NBA. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.